everyone. I'm your host, Liana Pavane, founder of TTYL, human connection advocate, certified life coach, and most importantly, a human that's just trying to figure it out. I'm your unapologetic 20-something native New Yorker, advocating selfships. Yes, I'm in a relationship with myself while navigating the dating world. I'm on a mission to break down dating stigmas in our society and to stop ghosting. I started this podcast after my ex broke up with me over the phone. I know, at least it wasn't a post-it. And I realized that our dating etiquette was severely lacking due to technology. Each week, I invite guests onto the podcast from all walks of life to discuss their first date horror stories and best dates. Because let's be honest, we don't focus on the positives enough when it comes to dating. The best part about this podcast is that after each episode, I've walked away feeling more confident about myself and my relationships. So whether or not you're single, in a relationship, or find yourself in a situationship, I welcome you to get comfy as I dive into the uncomfy so we can normalize it together. Do you want to feel magical every day? Now you can. When you adorn yourself with glitter from Unicorn Snot, you too can shine bright like a diamond. Add sparkle to your next night out, your first date, or just for yourself while you work from home because self-ships use code Liana15UnicornSnot for 15% off their face and body products or their new Bio Glitter Sunscreen with 30 SPF so that you can literally shimmer in the sunshine. That's code Liana15UnicornSnot at unicornsnot.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Ghosts of Dates Past. I am super excited for today's episode. I'm here with Pran. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, hello. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm Pran. I'm a writer, creative, based out of London, also a psychotherapist in training. And I'm really excited. I'm really excited to kind of talk about what we are going to talk about today. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of good conversation, I think. So before that, let's dive into your first date horror story. Oh, God. Okay, so this one, the caveat with this one, I think, is I'm the worst date in this situation. I did not come off well uh, because I was trying to think of horrible ones and they are there, but like this is the worst. I think this is the worst story I have. I was out of a three-year relationship for a month and this is, I'm in like my last year of college, I think. So in Ireland, college is four years. And so undergrad is four years. And I, my housemate set me up with one of her friends. And lovely human, truly incredible. I'd met her once at a house party. So I was like, yeah, this, this sounds like a good idea. And it wasn't a good idea, spoiler, because, you know, a lot of healing to do, a lot of work to get through, fresh out of a relationship. I, I came home from work. And I set an alarm to wake up on time. I didn't. <laughs> so I, um, by the time I get up, 20 minutes have passed before I'm meant to meet this person. So I text her frantically. I'm like, listen, I'm really sorry. I'm running late. And she's very kind through all of this. And I arrive at the date. I'm going to say 30 minutes late, 35 minutes late. Like I ran. I bolted from where I used to live. And at this point, any reasonable person would have left. But she didn't which is great. Uh, big shout out to her. I'm not going to take names, but yeah, just very kind through it all. She was like, no, I get it. Sometimes it happens. You know, I did this stupid thing once on a date before. So she's really kind of diffused the situation. It's like, okay, now we're off to like somewhat of a clean slate. We can start talking. And Liana, I hadn't been on a date in three years. So I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. 
and I I start talking and this is oh, I, I, I have so much love for this part of me but I'm also like cringe every time I think about this I spend the next 30 minutes talking about Enrique Iglesias nobody should talk about Enrique Iglesias beyond the point of like yeah he used to be great in the 90s you know then really shit since and like in hindsight bit cheesy that's all you ever have to talk about Enrique Iglesias but that's not what I did I went through each album and went through the best songs or the best ones out of each of those albums what it really meant to me growing up as a kid and uh, she she looked at her watch considering that she'd been here for like at least an hour longer than anybody should have had to wait through that ordeal she's like yeah I actually have to be somewhere and I didn't say anything I just sat there sipped on my coffee and uh, yeah yeah, that, that's the worst date. I, I, I was the worst date, probably, for this person ever. That's a hilarious story. Thank you for sharing. I, well, I, that's the first we've heard Enrique Iglesias come on the podcast. Yeah, <laughs> I, every, every time that story's come up, you know, my, my future dates since that time have asked me about my worst dates. And I'll never shy away from, you know, painting myself in a bad light. And every time that has come up, it's always met with like, why? Just why? Just like you showed up late. That's like, that's one horrible thing. But then to put somebody through the ordeal of that, just, just, yeah. Yeah, I feel like it's one of those things when you do show up late, though, to something you get really flustered and try to just think of anything that's coming to your head and like, oh, okay, yeah, this thing, cool, we'll go with that. And you just kind of roll with it. But yeah, I mean, I feel like it's kind of doomed before it starts in a way. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and it was doomed. Let's be honest, it was doomed <laughs> for many reasons. But yeah, Enrique being one of them. Amazing. So let's dive in a little bit about your background. You have this really beautiful background, which you shared with me before the podcast. Can you tell everyone how you grew up and how you came to discover your sexuality? So for anybody listening in, I am brown. I was born in India, but I've moved around quite a bit. And I'm, I'm bisexual. And it's, it's been a very interesting journey, simply because, as you can imagine, India, even though my family, them, they're, they're very lovely and definitely not conservative when it comes down to things like this. The, the culture that I found myself around was, you know, quite, quite heteronormative. I never knew of, you know, same-sex relationships kind of growing up. I don't think I'd even known what gay was up until, like, the, the typical, you know, taking the piss out of the gay character in the movie kind of showed up in one of the Bollywood films of the time. And I know I said this to you, Bollywood really fucked me up. I think that's also one of the ways that Bollywood really fucked me up. I mean, sure, listening to Enrique is one problem, but, like, yeah, kind of coming across not having good models or like having the models of where you're joked about. And then I went to a single sex boarding school, like a very military school. And as you can imagine, that was a tough environment to kind of be in. So the ridiculous things of, and I've written about a lot of this, but like say I have always been drawn to the creative arts. I've always been drawn to performance. Um, I, I play music, I sing, and, you know, uh, that's a very colourful way to present yourself. You know, I'm not just going to sit glumly on a microphone and strum my guitar, no. I like to move and I like to sway and things like that. But every time that happened, um, I, I used to do musical theatre in school. So anytime that would happen, you know, you, you'd be labelled as like a feminine boy. And I used to compliment people on the way they dressed or like, you know, hey, that's a really good sense you're wearing it like, oh, gay. So it's just like gay was used as this 
oppressive label of like the worst thing you could be is like gay because in any way that was being close to the feminine. So it it it, it had been a quite a journey kind of coming out of that. I left school to go to Canada and work in a boarding school for a bit. And that kind of, you know, being surrounded by all different kinds of gender identities, different sexualities, um, really opened me up to the idea of like, wait, I'm not weird for maybe, you know, being this way. But even then it took me, you know, I started coming out to my private circles at the start of the pandemic. It took me all of 24 years to kind of really accept myself for who I was through a lot of shame. There was a lot of repressed kind of homophobia within myself as well. So kind of that that has been therapy has been super helpful for that as well. And yeah, there's there's a whole there's a whole journey. But yeah, that's that's basically me kind of going growing up from these different parts and trying to find myself. Mm, thank you for sharing. And so you came out. When was that? And how did you kind of come to terms with that internally, I guess, before you decided to tell other people? Yeah. OK, so I, I was actually chatting to my housemate about this where I was like, oh, these are the things that I'm hoping to talk about on the podcast. And he didn't know what my first experience of maybe being honest with myself of like, fuck, I find men attractive was. Um, I was in a threesome uh, and I approached that threesome. He's like, yeah, we're mates, you know, we're not going to be sexually involved with each other. But we did. We, we engaged in sexual contact. And any lie that I had built up around me of like, you know, I don't find men attractive. I don't find you know, I, I'm only straight kind of really broke down in that moment as well. And we, I joke about this now, but I think if I'm being honest, 14 year old me knew because he was obsessed with Taylor Swift and kind of, <laughs> kind of really, really, it, it took me, this sounds ridiculous, but the day I came out, I just played shake it off on repeat just all day because it was, it was a moment. It was like, fuck, I can now listen to Taylor Swift without feeling any shame because that, that I carried that with me, you know, I didn't want to be seen as not a man, which is something I have really learned to let go of or redefine in a way. You know, I'm still a man. I can be bisexual and still be a man and not in the I, I, I had to declutter myself of all these ideas of what masculinity meant to me of, you know, moving from the Marlboro man or the, you know, Clint Eastwoods of the Westerns to the, you know, suave guy wearing a suit, smoking a cigar, to just who I am now, which is, you know, I like my uh, Taylor Swifts. I still like my Enrique Iglesias. I know that's weird, but like, fuck that, because that's who I am. And so I, I, I had that whole journey of like slowly accepting myself. And especially after that threesome, I was like, yeah, yeah, so we, I do say I'm straight, but, you know, I did enjoy that experience quite a lot. And I think that was a big catalyst where like I had to stop telling myself or convincing myself of the lie. And eventually I sent an email to my private circles, which was, and these two things, the second thing I'm going to say happens on the same day as well. But so I first sent an email to my private circles, that is close members of my family, um, some of my friends, uh, my mentors. Um, and it's just a group of 25, 30 people. And I'm like, I will write about this someday and I want others to feel less alone in their experience. So that is why I want to write this. But I want you to hear this from me before you hear this on my podcast or another podcast or just any time I speak about this. I want you to know from me first and I'm happy to talk about it. But, you know, I want to love more than one person uh, irrespective of their gender identity. 
and that is who I am. I'm a brown, bisexual, non-monogamous man. And so I send that email. And that same evening, my mum was heading out to the capital. So I moved back to India during the pandemic. And that's a whole story on its own. But yeah, I decided to move back home, a place I hadn't lived in for 13 years. And my mum was boarding a train and we had like four hours between like her leaving for the train station. And I was like, hey, can I talk to you about something? And I sat her down and I said, the reason I'm saying this now is because I want you to have some space from me and have the time to think about what I'm about to tell you before we sit down and actually have a conversation about this. And you may have known about this. You maybe don't even care, but I need you to know that I am bisexual. And I know this changes some ideas of what you may think about me, what you may have hoped for me. Because, you know, Indian parents, as I understood up until this evening, was they expect you to find a job, settle down by the time you're 28, get married around that time and have your first kid when you're 29 or 30. And my parents never pushed us down that route. And even though they didn't, that's like a cultural thing that you kind of that rubs off on you. And so I was carrying all of this. I sat her down and I said all these things. And I said, you know, you may have an idea of me marrying a woman. And I may still do. I don't know. Uh, but I may also end up marrying a man. I may end up marrying somebody who identifies as non-binary. I may just end up marrying a person. And I need you to be aware of this. And so my mom holds the silence for a bit. I was like, fuck, what, what, what is she going to say? And she said, it worries me. And I'm like, why? She's like, because it's going to be very challenging for you. But as far as I'm concerned, I just love you. And who you choose to love is entirely up to you. And I was like, damn. She then asked me all these questions. And questions of like, you know, when did you know? How did you know? Uh, and my mum knows, she's one of my closest friends. And we, we ended up talking about all of this. She was most scandalized hearing about a threesome that I had. And it's, it, was, it was just this brilliant conversation that we had for two hours. Because I had a very tough childhood. I was a sick kid, kind of growing up really sick as well, in and out of hospitals. And so my, for my mum, it was like, and I understand where she came from. She's like, for me, you're alive. And that's the most important thing. Damn anybody who has the gall to say, you know, your son's doing something else. Heck them, like, this is all I am. This is my family. So long as you're happy and you're okay with your choices, that's absolutely fine. But she ended that whole thing with just, just practice safe sex. I was like, you don't have to tell this to a 26-year-old. I am practicing safe sex. You don't have to tell me this. Uh, but yeah, uh, that's how it came out. My dad, uh, we haven't had a conversation about it. But um, I think he knows, you know. But there's a whole relationship that my dad and I share where we don't really talk <laughs> other than cars and stocks and Tesla. But yeah, I think he knows and I'd say he's OK with it. My sister, I, I have an older sister and she was like, I'm not surprised. I was like, why? She's like, I, I saw you dance as a kid. No straight boy dances like that. <laughs> I was like, fair enough. <laughs> fair enough. Very fair. So, yeah, that's that's kind of how I came out. Wow. That is such a beautiful story. I'm honestly, you're a great storyteller and I'm very captivated by what you just said. I think, I mean, it's amazing that your family and how supportive they were. I think that's something that was very different in my family. My sister is gay and my parents actually decided to hide that from me for a big part of my childhood. And it's not something that I talk about a lot because 
I was so young at the time and I didn't really understand, you know, I didn't really know what sexuality is. We're kind of learning that in health class, but it's still kind of hard to wrap your head around. And, you know, as far as I know, in middle school, everyone has crushes on guys or girls, you know, heterosexual crushes are happening. I don't know of anything else. And, you know, since then, there have been a bunch of kids from that class that have come out as gay or bi or or non-binary and such. But yeah, I think it was when I was 13 and my sister finally sat me down and with my parents' permission, I think it was around Hanukkah or something, and told me that she was gay or that she's, I think she said something like, remember my friend so-and-so? And I was like, yeah. Oh, she's actually my girlfriend. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> like to me, she was just this, I mean, we're 12 years apart. So like to me, she was just this role model, like older sister who I thought was super cool, like no matter who she was. And I think that's something that my parents have still struggled with is what you said that they don't want it to be hard for her. They don't want, she ended up marrying a woman and they've been together for a decade and, you know, life is great and everything. But I think there's still that pressure on wanting grandchildren that's then passed on to me. And I think that's something that can be frustrating sometimes because then, you know, I'm 26. I don't know if I want kids. I have no idea who I'm going to marry. I don't know when I'm going to marry someone, if, whatever, all these questions. And so I think there's that, yeah, there's that interesting dynamic for sure in the family. I'm very curious, if you don't mind, kind of obviously your sister telling you when you were 13 to, you know, you being where you are at now, obviously seeing those family dynamics play as an adult. How how has that been like for you kind of through the years? Uh, kind of a, you know, I, I, I do agree. I think when you're 13, it's all like, yeah, cool. But like the older you get, you're like, oh, so this are, these are the many like very sociopolitical facets of, you know, being a gay couple. Um, yeah. Well, what was that? What was that like for you? I mean, it was definitely interesting. I remember when gay marriage was finally accepted in every state. And well, I guess now it's, I don't know, it's up in the air. But <laughs> at the time, I remember that day. And I think it was like right before I went to camp or something. And I just remember my first thought was that my sister could now outwardly have a relationship for the first time. And I think for my parents, it was more, oh, this is really real now. I think they are accepting of a lot of people, but I think at the same time when it comes to their own family, they just want what's easiest and not in a way that's unaccepting. You know, they're super liberal people. They're supportive of everyone. You know, we go to plays we I'm sure we would go to a drag show my parents would have a great time like they are the most open and and beautiful people also my best friends but I think when it came to someone that they literally raised it was a different story and I think that's very similar in a lot of familial units as well it becomes very real all of a sudden
I I once sat in a room. This is very recent, actually. This is March of last year. And actually not March. This is June of last year. And I was in a room. Uh, we had a few of our cousins over over the summer. And so my sister knows at this point. My mom knows. I don't think my dad knows. Because there was a conversation about how unnatural same-sex relationships are. And how unnatural non-monogamy is. As I'm sitting in that room. And my my mum just, you know, trying to be like, can we ch- talk about something else? Because, you know, this has the potential to being very political and then there's a lot of uninformed views happening around. And, you know, I, I have done support work for a while. I'm training to be <laughs> a psychotherapist. So I'm just, I'm just there holding space, being like, keep it cool. We don't need another fight out we don't because that never works you know and like my research for my dissertation is about political political beliefs and opinion formation and it's very hard to change people's opinions and yeah I'm just sitting there and I'm just like hearing all these different views coming in and there's a moment where like there's a lot happening and my sister just holds my hand and just like was like it's okay and then every conversation dies out and people are heading out and I want the last word you know, as the person that identifies on all these fronts, I need to have the last word. And as they're heading out for dinner, I was like, can I just say something? And they're like, yeah. And I say, from everything I've heard, it's not about what's, you know, making someone happy, what, you know, someone really wants for themselves, how they see the world. It's about none of this. It's like happiness, joy, living to your fullest self is not part of it all. All the only two things that are part of this are literally the anatomy and the sex why are you so obsessed with someone else's dick and everybody erupts in a laugh I was like I'm not joking like why and they they didn't really have anything to say and uh, that's that's been a lot of the conversations that I've been part of and then obviously my dad's simmered down since because I think my mom was like you need to be very mindful your son identifies maybe with all these things but I I do find it's oh it's a this is very individual very subjective as well but I think when it becomes too real for you when it's someone in your family or when you start immediately knowing of people in your circles it maybe should in an ideal world help you to dig into your own beliefs and reconsider all these you know very hateful or ignorant views that people might hold but sometimes it doesn't Uh, which is why I was kind of I'm always interested about people's experiences of like coming out or like, you know, such as yourself having siblings, uh, siblings who, you know, have had to go through that experience as well. But I'm glad I'm glad your parents were, you know, on the line of we don't understand this completely, but we respect your choice as opposed to this is horrible because we know of those stories as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I there, there's still times where there'll be a tiff and I always defend my sister and I just say, I, I don't want to be part of this conversation if you guys have your opinions please take it elsewhere I don't want to hear you talk about my sister like this and yeah it's just it's also just different generations you know I think the inability to really understand you know I grew up with my friends coming out and just that being at, still I remember a friend all through high school and and I had no, I honestly had no idea. I mean, there were inklings, I guess, but 
he came out first as bi and then told us he was gay. Was, and I think that's another thing too. Like a lot of people see bisexuality as this stepping stone. Is that something that has affected you? Not really. I actually was listening to a very in- interesting episode from a podcast called, I don't know if you've heard of them. I would recommend a listen anyway. It's called Two Bi Guys. And they did an episode with Mark Wilkinson, who is like a research, I think he does critical language analysis or critical linguistics. And so they were talking about the term bisexuality. And what you're saying there is actually very true. One of the early definitions in the 70s or 80s about bisexuality was this in-between period of like, you know, having identifications with both sexes and then that being a transition period to moving beyond it's, it's always very interesting what the term means. I think for me, as I have understood it for myself, or as I use it for myself anyway, is that I want to... For me, it's the people that matter, right? What your gender identity is, what your anatomy is, couldn't matter less to me, because for me, it's about connecting with somebody, right? And a lot of journey had to come into understanding that of, you know... Say, for example, and sex is a lot more about just penetrative sex. You know, there's a lot of ways to play as a couple, um, as people. And so once I moved past that and once I moved past my very restrictive understanding of what that was and what just like love was, I think it really helped me understand that bisexuality for me is the freedom to just love people irrespective of how they identify. Um, and that's how I see it. I find people attractive. And yeah. Which is, which is why initially I used to, when I, when I was even dabbling in my own head with the idea of bisexuality or like, you know, finding men attractive, like, yeah, I'd never marry a man uh, or I never have like a long-term partner as a man. That's not true anymore. I have met some incredible men. I've met some dull men as well. Let, let's be honest, like there's that as well. Um, I've met some incredible women. I've met some very dull women. <laughs> I've just met dull people and interesting people. And I think you know, it's hard to find people to love anyway, or people you connect with. So why am I putting so many walls in front of me being like, oh, well, uh, they do not have the anatomy that I desire. I, I just desire people. So yeah, that's how I come at it. Uh, but I'm, I'm sure for, for people, it can often be a way to get people comfortable with the idea that you're not normative. And if that helps you, if that helps you understand yourself better, if that helps you own yourself and be yourself more, I think absolutely. Yeah, no, I I completely agree. And I, I mean, I relate to that sense, you know, in looking around people, I always try to find the beauty in people. And I often find that when I'm out or, you know, even my friends, like admiring how beautiful they are, my girlfriends, I'm not, personally, I'm not sexually attracted to them, but I can see why someone would be like I'm like wow this girl is so beautiful like my friends are so beautiful and I think women are beautiful as well and I you know am more sexually attracted to men but that doesn't mean I can't appreciate every kind of person and I think that's something that is also just a really beautiful way to look at the world seeing the beauty in everyone around you versus oh I can only find this person attractive or like look at this gender or whatever it is so yeah I agree and you mentioned a little bit about pop culture influencing a lot of your upbringing so can you talk a little bit about that too there's so many facets to this and I can you know we could do like a whole two episodes on like each of these facets but I think 
for me, the two things that I really, I, I do think it really messed me up was A, what love was like and B, what just like different types of love on screen were. And that means for TV shows, that means for, you know, Pokemon even kind of movies, of course, music as well. For me, I think the, the hardest thing, you know, we talk about how in Hollywood, say Kumail Nanjiani is the first brown superhero I've seen right? In the Eternals. And that is powerful. Seeing somebody of your own race, from your own part of the world, like he's doing a Bollywood number in the movie and speaking in Hindi. That is incredible. Seeing seeing representation like that blows my mind. And I am so grateful that there'll be generations of kids, you know, seeing more of those things. And I think the same applies for same-sex relationships. I think the same applies for non-monogamous relationships. There's a whole conversation that happens in the non-monogamous community on Instagram or Twitter where just like the view of non-monogamy is deeply just like it's always either a throuple it's a very dramatic throuple and it always fails because it's just an excuse to fix a relationship it's like never you know seeing different kinds of groups or pairings just hanging out and being normal people around each other same with you know for me growing up a lot of gay characters that I saw on screen were just like these hyper-feminine, joke, jokey characters. And I've never met, I have genuinely never met anybody that ever fit any of that. Because they were always just like over the top, always very pervy and sexual and uh, deeply just like predatory. And that's a lot of what gay characters in Bollywood were. And it's a miracle that there even were gay characters. But at that point, I'm just like, it'd be better not to have that. Because for the longest time, that was my image of gay characters in my head. I was just like, oh, well, all gay people are sexual predators, which is so, so problematic. Uh, it's just, that really screwed me up. Um, music, right? Um, understanding of love. I grew up with the understanding of love being like, you know, you try and serenade them with smooth songs. And then once they give in, you're like, sold, not have to give zero effort, just sing a song every five days and you're golden. Or if they don't, which is a lot of what Bollywood movies even today are, you just relentlessly chase and force them into submitting to your love, which is just so problematic. It's like so, so fucking deeply problematic. But so, yeah, I think in, in many ways, those views in pop culture, and there's so many, everybody will have their own answer to it. But I think for me growing up, kind of seeing those things, very problematic. It really screwed me up and I had a lot of unlearning to do when it came to that, you know, dramatic overbursts of love, but like sitting in the rain and with you on your knees, it's like, but I love you. It's like, that did nothing for anybody. You're probably going to get pneumonia. Go home. You know, think, sleep on this, go home, think about this, and then say what you have to say. You know, standing outside somebody's windows, throwing stones, you're going to hurt somebody. You know, that's, that's damaging property. Don't do that shit. Um, it's it's weird shit like that. I've done both those things. That's the weird thing. As eighteen year old me did both those things. So so, so you know I'm I'm happy to say that some ten years later I've unlearned all of it. But it was a process. You know I really fucked up in the way in the middle somewhere. So yeah. No, that's so true. I mean I definitely think when you're a kid, and I've talked about this on the podcast as well, just Disney movies and the idea of finding your prince charming or rom-coms as we get older. And like you mentioned, you know, being outside someone's window with the boombox from an 80s film or, or what have you. And I feel like there are, you know, I think you pine for that. And maybe you have 
moments of that in a date or you know you just feel this intense connection and you think oh this could be my big love story or this could be that romantic person in my life but it's yeah I think it does skew love for a lot of people and makes us question what love really is or how it should be expressed and a lot of people don't you know you grow up and realize you don't like big gestures or you don't like receiving these gifts so it's very very interesting in that way but I also want to get to your best first date story speaking of happy happy moments (laughs) I I had to have a big think about this because I, I I feel lucky I think that in the last while, I've, I think I've only, well, with the exception of one, I think I've only had like decent or good dates. But I think this one really takes the cake. This is pre-pandemic world. But a bit of a backstory. When I started exploring my non-monogamy, I, you know, didn't have people around me who I could just fire questions of like, wait, so how do you pay taxes? Kind of random shit like that, you know? Or like, how do you decide who stays where? Or like, how do you divide, you know, just chores in the house? And so Dublin had this brilliant support group where like one of the rules were, you know, this is not a sex cult. We're just like openly non-monogamous people trying to support anybody that needs help, basically, or like needs a community. And so I, I feel incredibly privileged to kind of have been part of that group for a while. And so I walk into this meeting and this is my first meeting ever. And I'm nervous. I am t- dead terrified. And I walk in. And I see somebody wearing a rust-colored jumper. And I was just like, damn, that person's cute. And so th- that's some of the backstory. And then over the couple of meetings, we started talking a bit. But like, you know, you, you don't want them to know they've caught your eye. You know, playing it cool. And there's, there's a third or fourth meeting where they were talking about doing story t- or going to an open mic night and trying to tell a story. And I used to do a couple of open mic nights in Dublin where I just get on stage and tell ridiculous stories. And so I was like, if you want somebody to come with you, I'll happily go. It's like moral support. They're like, would you actually? And like, yeah. So we decided to go for the storytelling night. They told a story. They won, which was incredible. And yeah, they had an incredible story. Uh, and yeah, they, they, they won. And we were like, damn, that was great. And I walked them back home. And it wasn't a date, but it felt very datey. I was like, okay, cool. I'm probably going to see them again next time. And the next time I see them, I'm going to ask them out on a date. And life got busy. I used to work a very busy nine to five. I used to work for a counseling service. I used to just like mad hours, loved it. And so didn't manage to get through the couple next few meetings. But like we stayed in touch and they texted me on one of the days back home. It's like, what are you doing this evening? And I said, you know, nothing really. Uh, probably going to go home and watch Avengers. I love the MCU. Fun fact. I'm a nerd and they they basically in not so many words we decided we probably should cuddle and watch the movie together and so we didn't end up watching the avengers what we did end up watching was professor marston and the wonder woman it's uh, if if you've seen that movie you know it's truly incredible and it it is probably one of the only movies i've seen where like any sort of non-monogamy is portrayed in a very beautiful way it's a very erotic movie and, you know, we're cuddling and we're watching this movie and I'm like, damn, okay, this is, this feels like a date, but obviously it wasn't a date. Who am I kidding? But, you know, it wasn't official. So anyway, they leave and it's just like, damn, missed my chance, should have asked them out on a date. And then they messaged me and they were like, hey, 
I may be reading this completely wrong, but that felt very datey. It's like, yeah, it did. And they're like, uh, would you would you be interested in maybe potentially going on a date? And I was like, I only accept formal letters. I shit you not. They wrote me a formal letter. <laughs> they wrote me a formal letter, took a picture of that letter. And one of the things that, that was said on those letters, basically, I went on a date once, which was a horrible date. And they, they didn't said I wasn't brown enough, whatever the fuck that means. And so I told her that story once upon a time. So on that letter that she wrote me, it was like, I have found you to be adorable, the right amount of brown and exceptional company. And uh, she was like, we can we can liaise our secretaries to schedule a date together. We went on a date to a plastic exhibition, which was, you know, these brilliant pieces of art made out of plastic at the Science Gallery in Dublin. Truly incredible. And what I loved about that was... We kind of had moments where like I'd be caught up with one piece and like we'd move away, we'd drift away, but we'd find our way back. And it was like this beautiful moment of synergy. And we ended up getting drinks after. We ended up getting food after. Uh, and we kissed. And it was possibly the, oh, it was the best kiss I've ever had. Because it had been such a long time coming as well. It was just like the most innocent, beautiful thing. We kissed in Temple Bar outside of this place that we were waiting to get in. And it was just magical. It was incredible. And at the end of the evening, we both got on different trams and went home. And it was just the most, like, beautiful experience I've had. It's the best date I've had. I've written about this date. It's the most incredible thing I've ever been part of and I had to share with another human. So, yeah, that was that's my best date. Wow, that's an incredible date. And what happened? Did you see her again? No, uh, we, we saw each other again. I was in a place in my life where I was leaving Dublin. There were parts about them that I was too immature to maybe accept at the time. And they were they were slightly older than me. And with the knowledge that I'm leaving Dublin, like I had maybe six months, seven months left in Dublin. I just it was it was it was a if I could go back in time, I'd obviously, you know, knowing how things are now I'd just be like, fuck this. This is insignificant. But yeah. Yeah, we, we, we ended things. We ended things in a park, sitting on a bench in November. It was fairly cold. I remember this day, clear as day. But yeah. Wow. Well, they sound like a really incredible person. And yeah, sometimes those those experiences, it's just more about what we gained rather than what we lost. Because I feel like you learn something from each experience that you have. I never want to be with anybody that doesn't make me feel that way. You know, or some semblance of that way. Like, I have, since then, I've, you know, barely met anybody that I felt maybe that strongly for. But yeah, that was a that was a good day. That was a very good day. Yeah, I think that's such a good reminder, like that idea of not settling. And I feel like I've also had those crazy connections with people where you feel like you've known them or that you've had this conversation before or just this kind of, otherworldly connection almost with people and knowing that that exists and that I've had it multiple times I know that it's out there for me in a long-term situation and I think a lot of people just don't believe that that's real and so they just fall for whoever and so you know some people are lucky and meet those people early on but I think a lot of people just give up before that happens. I mean, for me, where I stand now is actually this past week, 
they they weren't so obviously non-monogamy you can have different levels of partners or like how often you see somebody and what that relationship is i was seeing somebody on and off for like two years and we ended that relationship recently because we hadn't seen each other since the pandemic and you know you can't really call that a relationship but like intentionally if we're talking about you know a term that is often used it's primary partner i haven't had a primary partner in four years i think the reason for that is i'm not going to settle it's like you were saying saying i've experienced something so i i will call it magical right it doesn't it defies all logic but i, I mean i love this person i love this person in the month that i knew them and ending it was a hard thing for me I, it was hard for them as well but I'm not going to settle for something that doesn't set my soul on fire like the way they did, you know. And I know there are other people out there, you know. But so so why why put yourself through? Because I much rather stay single and work on myself and do the things that I do and connect with people on other levels than kind of, you know, heartbreaks are horrible. <laughs> Ending relationships are tough. Why would I want to make myself go through all of that, you know, again and again? It's just <laughs> not pleasant. I know exactly how you feel. Yeah, get a reminder. Good reminder, 100%. Someone out there for all of us. Yes, totally. So going a little bit more into non-monogamy and polyamory, you obviously have to communicate that. And I assume the primary partner, I've actually not heard that term before, but that is the person that you're really dating. That's your person. And then you have other partners that you are more sexual with, or that's your other or maybe not. I mean, I guess your polyamory could be emotional or sexual, right? So, yeah. I mean, I guess you can kind of explain that as well. Just I'm, I'm like, I think this is what it means. And then also, you know, the communication and how you kind of go about that. Or if you've ever encountered, I guess I'm curious if you've ever encountered a situation where your primary partner wasn't familiar with polyamory and how you navigated that. Okay, so I'm, in the grand scheme of things, I think I'm still, like, very new to polyamory or non-monogamy. I've been practicing for five years, which, you know, is still more than one month. But I, I have known of people, you know, who've been non-monogamous their entire lives. What I, this is, this is where, like, terminology can be so restrictive. Because the way I identify as a primary partner is very different. So, f- from what I understand, a lot of, in the non-monogamous community, primary partner is, like, your main partner. And then you have all these different partners. But the connotation sometimes with primary partner is like there's a more intimate connection with them. And then other connections is less significant. So I think for me and how it is for me, I think the closer that I come to is the nesting partner. So a nesting partner is somebody that, you know, you're paying mortgage with, that you're having maybe kids with or you have a dog with, you know. But the intimacy or the capacity of connection isn't less significant or insignificant with someone else. You may have connections, just like the one I did uh, that I ended recently, where like it was an intense emotional connection. We connected intellectually, the sexual connection, but like emotionally, you know, there was a level of detachment by virtue of like not having seen them for a while. And even at the start of our, I'd say, relationship, there's like we were both very busy people doing our things. But so when I when I talk about nesting partner, I think that's that's my version of a primary partner. This is the person I'm paying rent with. Uh, you know, this is the person that we go to. I don't know vintage shops and fine rugs that's that's my person and I'm I'm never going to say that you know maybe at the end of the day I end up living with three people or four people logistically that sounds overwhelming to me I'd prefer to just have the one partner that I share a house with but 
yeah, it, it, it's, it's again, there's so much I don't know about in the future. Things might change. But as I stand now, I think that's what that means for me. Um, so yeah, maybe not primary partner, more ne- nesting partner is like what it is for me. In in terms of having, you're, you're dead on, I think there's a level of communication. So we talked about dating apps recently. And I think for me, I, I was on Hinge for over a year. And I I will always put in my profiles or my bio that I am non-monogamous and that I date independently of my partners. If I have partners at the time, if I didn't have partners at the time, I'd say, you know, I'm just non-monogamous. And because a lot of people date as couples, um, you know, some couples date independently. There's just like all these different facets within. And yeah, that, that that's that's how I communicate at the get go, because it's so weird going on a first date with somebody and then breaking that topic. I think it's such an awkward position to put them in as well. It's like putting somebody on a spotlight. Um, I don't think they I, I'd never assume anyone's consented to it. You know, you, you have you have to consent to the, going on a date with somebody that is non-monogamous. So why would I put somebody in that uncomfortable position? So all my profiles say it. Hinge is an app that is meant to be deleted. And as somebody who's non-monogamous, the idea is to not really delete apps. You know, you're always open to more connections. So I met some of the nicest people on Hinge, in fairness. But because I think it it requires a lot more effort. But yeah, Hinge is really not good for the non-monogamous community, I'd say. And so the ones that I'm, I don't do apps (laughs) at all now. But like the only one I can think of that I have a somewhat active profile on, I'll go once a month and like, huh, meh, go back, uh, is Field. And what I like about Field is like everybody on their profiles and everything is just explicitly communicative of like, this is what I desire, this is where I'm at, this is what I identify as, this is what I'm looking for. So helpful to have, so great to have as well. So I, I really like that aspect of it. But... you're dead on I think it's important to communicate to people that this is what I am I've never had a situation where I was dating somebody who wasn't non-monogamous because I think I would feel very uncomfortable being with somebody like oh yeah it's okay you know you're uh, I'm monogamous and you're non-monogamous see yeah it's a hard word to say in fairness Uh, (laughs) but yeah it's I it's an awkward position I think I I would never, I'd feel too responsible for that person's happiness. I think for me, it's the idea of like, I know for a fact I can't be the one and only for anyone. You know, there's parts of them that I will identify and meet. You know, I may meet them intellectually or creatively or sensually, romantically, but like there's facets of all those things that somebody else might meet, you know. Um, so why should I hold my partner back? And that's, that's, yeah, that's how I'd, I'd feel too much pressure. It's like, oh, so I have all these three people that meet my different parts, but my nesting partner only, you know, needs me. It's like, oh, but I can't be this person. Um, and there are part phases where you go through being monogamous, uh, even as a non-monogamous couple, you know, maybe you have kids. Um, maybe, you know, you're both too tired to date anybody else. Maybe it's the pandemic, you know, you can't see other people. Um, but I think, yeah. Uh, I've never really had a situation where I was dating somebody that was monogamous uh, because it's I am non-monogamous. I'm not, I used to I fun 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 funny little thing. I used to have this thing where I was like, oh, but for the right person, I will be monogamous. And like, nah, who am I kidding? And I think that came from a place of like not wanting to be alone. Like, I'll settle for monogamy if it means I'm not alone. I was like, no, I'm just lying to myself. I'm lying to the person I will be with. I'll probably end that relationship. It's just not fair so yeah I'm just 
it's just like, no, I must rather be single for the next couple of, I mean, years if I have to, than lie to somebody and be like, oh, well, for you, I will try monogamy because you seem worth it. Like, I can't lie to myself, you know? It's okay to be alone, Pran. So, so yeah. I, yeah, no, that's, that's a great point. And I feel like what you identify as, I feel like you are put in a really great position to be upfront and honest and vulnerable and authentic early on, even on a dating app profile before you even meet people. And I've come across dating app profiles like that too, or I see, you know, a couple looking for a third or um, someone who identifies as bisexual or non-monogamous or anything like that. And yeah, I mean, when I see that, I think, oh, I'm glad I knew this now. Like, that's what I think, because that is the decent thing to do. And I think it's interesting that there are a lot of things that someone could or should disclose early on in a relationship that a lot of people don't. But when it comes to sexuality, I feel like, at least in our generation, a lot of people are very open on dating apps about that. But yeah, I find it interesting. I feel like in more, I mean, from my experience, at least in heterosexual relationships, I find that people aren't as willing to be open and honest and communicative early on. At least that's like a majority. And again, from my personal experience, but I think, I, yeah, I don't know. I find that to be a little interesting. I think I can only speak from my own experience. All of this is just based on my experience, right? And anybody listening in kind of I, I hope you have the inquiry within yourself to kind of discover what your reasons for being who you are and doing the things that you do are. But say, when, when we're talking about not disclosing, say for the time that I was on, you know, not being like, oh, well, I will be monogamous for this one person. I th- it came from a place of being alone and fear of being alone, right? So so you, you're talking about, you know, being showing up for yourself. I want the people I date. Doesn't matter if I date them for a month doesn't matter if we end up being in a relationship for the next decade. The person that decides to be with me needs to know exactly what they're getting into. So obviously on my dating profile, I'd say, you know, this is who I am. I'm non-monogamous. I'm bisexual. This is this is what I am. And that leads, I mean, listen, there's if 10 people check that out, maybe seven people swipe left, right? But of the four people that swipe right, they're making an informed decision to swipe right. And so then I when I go on a date... It's a conversation that always comes up. You know, every single first date that I've been on with somebody since identifying as bisexual and non-monogamous has been like, oh, so tell me more about this. What is it like for you? All these different things. And it's, it's such a good icebreaker because already you're showing up as like, ask me anything. I am, take it or leave it. And one of the other things which the, the person that I went on the storytelling night date, many dates with, the, one of the most incredible things that they ever taught me was how to have a communication around safe sex. So I've never been the one to go and sleep with somebody on a first date. I wait for dates because I like to build up an intimacy with someone before I uh, share that level of intimacy with someone. And one of the things that I now have is before we ever have sex or engage in any sexual activity is a conversation around safe sex. The last time they got tested, disclose my uh, herpes status. And they should have an con- informed decision to be like, listen, I don't want to sleep with somebody who has herpes or like doesn't fucking matter to me. Or, you know, I haven't gotten tested recently, so maybe I should get tested and we can both, you know, tell each other we're safe from any STI at the moment and then engage in consensual 
sexual play. And that is, by the time you get there, I know it sounds so unsexy, all this communication and all this talking, but by the time you actually get there, it's just so natural because you've had like all these little checks and balances to really make sure that you like each other and willing to engage with each other in a very informed way. So, yeah, it's scary because, of course, all of those steps are a sign for rejection or a moment for somebody to be like, not for me. But, you know, if somebody can stand through me listening to, I don't know, talking about Enrique Iglesias for even five minutes, I think, you know, that's the that's the worst thing I have to worry about. <laughs> so, yeah. That's a new standard for you. So, and you mentioned, so having this safe sex conversation, which is amazing. So have you, do you find that you wait to have that conversation later? And do you, have you found that people get upset that you are not telling them earlier? Or how has that kind of gone for you? So with herpes, I will say that on the first date, because I discovered my status about seven months back. I was I was with somebody and they disclosed their status to me and I was like, that doesn't make a difference to me. And I get tested every time I have a new sexual partner because A, it's responsible to the other people that I'm seeing as well. And so, so I got tested and of the testing that I did, I was also like, can I get tested for herpes as well? Because it's weird, they will never do it on their own. You have to ask for it. And then there's a checklist of like, you have to fill a questionnaire of like, why are you getting this done? It's like, Somebody disclosed their status to me, I would like to see. I had it, again, for me, it doesn't make a difference. But since then, obviously, um, every first date that I go is like, listen, hey, this is something you should know. I want you to make an informed decision that that's where I'm at. And it leads to rejection. It's the hardest thing to kind of go through. But you know what? It's, it's about giving somebody the opportunity to say no, which is, you know, something that I was given. And I'm very grateful that I was given. But I know of people who didn't have that opportunity either. So I think that's very important. But for the conversation about the SDI statuses, after beyond that point, I will say this is the last test I had. Uh, if I, I would be more comfortable if we, I'll never be like, you have to get tested before we have sex. But like, it's always just like, you know, this is what I, my status is. And somebody else is like, oh, this is what, I, the sexiest thing somebody's ever said to me was, uh, we were on a date, we were talking about my herpes status and they were like, before we actually go on to this, um, here are my tests from the last time, you know, I engaged with somebody after the last time I engaged with somebody was like, I was just about to say it. This is great. This is incredible. And that conversation happens then. And for, for me, the framework and feel free to steal it. This is somebody this is this was given to me. And I've now this is this is such an incredible way to have the conversation as well, where we, I start talking about the SDI status first, because I think that's important, especially if you're in an intimate space or in an intimate moment and then talk about the relationship intentions, which sounds very heavy to have, it's like, what are we? It's not that conversation, it's like, what are you hoping for in a relationship? You know, what are you looking for? I think it sets you on an even setting. My answer is always, I don't have an end game. I don't have an end goal. I'm just looking for connection and I'm willing to engage with you as intimately as is comfortable for both of us. I think that's a good place to start. And then there's the conversation of like, okay, so what are your turnoffs? You know, in a person, in a relationship, in, in a sexual way, what are your turn-offs? And then you end with, obviously, what are your turn-ons? And by the time you get to the turn-ons, you've had so much communication that you're like, cannot wait to engage with you more intimately. And I think, you know, it's, it's a less awkward way to have that conversation. And it starts with, like, obviously, SDI status, 
relationship intentions, avoids or turn offs and then uh, turn ons. And that's that's where you leave it. I love that. That is yes, more of that, please. And I also feel like if you if a guy or anyone you're dating like and I've talked to guys about like I'd really like you to get tested or blah, blah, blah. I've literally had guys say, oh, I don't know how to do that or oh, I'm not, I don't need to do that, or I'm clean. It's not like I'm having, a, I, it's not like I have a ton of sexual partners. It's like you are putting your body in a vulnerable place every partner you have. And it is crazy to me how many times something like that has been said. And I know most of my friends don't ask their partners either. And they'll get tested, but then not ask. And I think you know, and I'm not perfect. And it's not like I haven't had moments of just like passion or like this, this happens, but like you use protection, whatever, whatever. But like, I always then I'm like, I need to get tested right now. And I feel like, yeah, it's just like protecting your body and and feeling safe. And I think that's such a good way to go about that conversation. Because it's like, okay, you might be talking about some uncomfy things. But you will learn how the other person responds to that, which is such an important stepping stone for a relationship if it's going to go long term. And then you can then touch on the same, what I call the same page conversation, because that's something that I have been frustrated with recently when I start getting these mixed signals and it goes on for like a month or two. And then I go, well, you were showing me X, Y, Z and that's not what you wanted? What are you talking about? And it's because we never had that conversation. And then then it's exploring, okay, what don't you like? What do you like? And there are even a lot of card games as well if people are interested in just bringing that to the table. But I think if that's the kind of relationship that you're looking for, if you're looking for a deeper connection, I think those are great. Those like four pillars are such a great place to start. Oh, absolutely. And I, I do think, you know, the first time I ever had that conversation, I, I was on the, I wasn't the instigator. I was shown how to have this conversation, right? And I was terrified with like the relationship intentions, but I was like, what do you mean? Do I want kids? Do I want marriage? Like, no, no, no. I'm not even thinking that far ahead. I'm just asking, we've hung out like four times right now. Where, where do you want this to go? Is there anywhere you want this to go? And they were completely honest. They were like, I'm not looking for a one night stand. I'm looking for intimacy. I'm busy. I know you're busy, but I'm looking for us to be intimate and I'm looking for us to be more involved in each other's lives. And if that's not OK with you, then that's fine. But I just need to know. I was like, this is brilliant. This is completely, you know, re- reducing the stress that this conversation would have kind of had um, in like a very normative connotation that it can bring. I was like, oh, my God, they're asking me for marriage. Like, no, they're not. They're just asking you where you're at. So, yeah. I love that. Oh, this has been incredible. I feel like we can keep talking on and on forever. But I want to get to our rapid fire questions and then where everyone can find you. So how do you get excited for a date? Ooh, I I dance. I will put on, I have a playlist called Bop. I will put on the Bop playlist. And this has got like the new songs that I'm really into, but also like cheesy old Pitbull songs as well. Uh, <laughs> so so it's, it's, it's gone from like, the, this is music from the 40s all the way till present day. And I love this playlist and I'll play it on. I'll do my house bits, I'll shower, I'll dress. And I, even as I'm commuting, I'll keep listening to the playlist and it sets me in the mood. It's just a brilliant playlist to have. I love that. And what 
is your ideal date? Oh, this is actually, I wish I had a, like any fancy answer. I, I just like talking and I will, for me, an ideal date would be obviously sun. UK can be quite miserable. I'd like sun. Outdoors, a walk, walk or a hike. A hike would be ideal in fairness. Just like a nice walk where you get to chat and or some form of activity. But basically outdoorsy activity that you can do. Maybe not a marathon that might be excessive, uh, but just like a nice chill day out ending with either a hot chocolate or a coffee, you know, yeah, just just time to get to know the person, I think, um, is is an ideal first day. Yeah, lovely. And uh, have you had a time where you've been ghosted or someone has ghosted you and what happened? Yeah, uh, this is, I, I, I prepared for this. I was thinking the, the worst ghosting story that I have. This was months after the Enrique Iglesias episode. I started therapy. I felt much safer. I knew Enrique wouldn't come out in a conversation. And I was seeing somebody. I was seeing somebody for like a couple of uh, months. And they went away for the summer. Um, they decided to go. I think there's a thing that happens in Europe, Camino, I think. It's like a pilgrimage. It's a hike. And so they went away for Camino. They were like, I'll text you when I'm back. Uh, five years later, still haven't texted me. So, yeah, and we really got on well. We really got on really well. Um, so, yeah, five years later, still haven't gotten text. But you know what, Liana? Their loss. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah. I always say it says more about them than it does about you. Because it's true. It's bad character. You don't want to be with someone like that. So where can everyone find you? Ooh, uh, if you want to stalk me, you can you can find me uh, on Instagram at pdarshan. Uh, I don't really post a lot about, you won't see my face quite a lot. You'll see my dogs, you, you, you'll see them. Or you can find the work that I do as well as like the other writers that I work with at the Write Up Project. Yeah, that's that's where you can find me. And we have a website as well. I have a podcast that I do called Love and Citizenship. We're all on platforms as well. Um, so yeah, that's that's where you can find me. Amazing. Thank you so much again and have a great rest of your day. Thank you. Bye. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode or this podcast in general, I would greatly appreciate it if you could subscribe, rate, and review below. And if you can think of anyone who would enjoy this podcast, please consider sharing it. As a new podcast, the most helpful thing is to grow by word of mouth. After all, who doesn't enjoy a good date story? Lastly, if you would like to connect with me, please follow me on Instagram at ghosts underscore of dates past. And feel free to shoot me a DM if you have a comment, question, or would like to be a guest. I'm always looking for new people to bring on to the show. Hope you all have lovely weeks and I'll be back next week for another juicy episode. Bye for now.